We uh, continue this morning in our sermon series that we're called For the City. We're asking the question, what would it mean if every member and friend of this church really began to champion the city in which they live? Really became champions of Gig Harbor and of Port Orchard and Tacoma and the KP and wherever else it is that the Lord has planted you. And this is a long journey. We're not doing this quickly. We are really leaning into this. So I'm, I'm grateful for you being here. Uh, we are being mentored in this process by Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who lived in Babylon, who worked in Babylon, got a call f- to go a thousand miles the other direction. And the Lord said, I want you to rebuild the city walls and restore the dignity of my city and restore the dignity of my people. So Nehemiah is teaching how we might engage with our city in ways that we have not done before. And I hope that we will. And by the way, guys, a little bunny trail. If, if all this talk about repairing walls and building gates has kind of got you inspired, want to make, you know, like Tim the tool man, you want to pull out some of, of your tools, I have the perfect opportunity for you to raise your hand and say, I'm in. And that's next Saturday. Next Saturday is our men's work day. And, uh, and I would, I'd love to see a hundred guys show up at seven o'clock for breakfast and then we're going to give ourselves to some needs that are scattered all around our, uh, our campus here. And, and if you were not one that normally raises your hand, this was a great way to do it. Just raise your hand to do this and maybe it'll prime the pump for raising your hand like we talked about last week to begin to move beyond these walls in ways that you've never done before. Tom Gray is one of our elders. He will be back there and signing you up, guys. So I hope you'll uh, sign up for that and, and join us next Saturday. So last week was Presbytery. That's the gathering of our, our regional churches. And before uh, this, the Presbytery was uh, our pastors' gathering, annual gathering of all the pastors from our region, from our Presbytery. And we met up at uh, Warm Beach Conference Center up near Everett. How many of you have ever been to Warm Beach Conference Center? A few of you. I discovered it is neither warm nor does it have a beach. (laughs) Not exactly truth in advertising, uh, but it was good, and uh, it was a great time of fellowship. But I got to say that the first morning started off a little rocky for me. I got up, I went to the shower, got in, and and I discovered that that they distribute their shampoo in little uh, ketchup packets. Have you ever tried to open one of these when your fingers are wet? So I'm flumbling around like this, and finally I just give up, reach up, tear it open, shot the whole thing right into my mouth. That woke me up. It's been a long time, Mom, since I had my mouth washed out with soap, and last time you did it. So this was it. When we turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, we discover uh, that the wall builders are beginning to wonder if they've bitten off more than they can chew. Chapter 3 was the chapter of enthusiasm. That's where we were last week. Chapter 3, Nehemiah has cast his vision and the people have taken hold of it. And the work has begun and you got 41 teams working shoulder to shoulder to rebuild these walls. We met Eliashib, the high priest, and he and his brothers are rebuilding the sheep gate. We met Uziel, the, the goldsmith, and Hananiah, the perfumer. And we met Shalom, the guy who only had daughters, but the girl power prevailed because they were building their section of wall too. One guy that we didn't meet that deserved probably introduction was a guy named Malkijah. Malkijah was the guy that was assigned to build the dung gate which is just as stinky and awful as it sounds. It was the poop gate. That's, that's what it was. And yet someone had to build it. And Malkaja said, all right, I'm in. I'm the poop gate guy. And so we meet all these people. They're so ready to go. They're pumped up and excited. That's chapter three. Then comes chapter four, and that's the chapter of discouragement. 
I want you to open your Bibles right now. You'll find Pew Bibles in front of you. If you didn't have yours here or your app, it's on page 400 in your Pew Bible. Open it and keep your Bible app or your Bible open because I'm going to be referring to it throughout the morning. We're not going to read the whole bit of it, but we've got a bunch of chunks we're going to read. And it will be helpful if you have it in front of you. But I want you to start by taking a look at verse 6 where we read, So we built the wall, Nehemiah writes, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. Now you'd say, well, that's good news, isn't it? I mean, they, they've begun the work and already the wall is halfway built. They're making progress. Problem is, what does that mean? You've got halfway more to build and it's the hardest half. This is a nine-foot-wide, thick wall, and you've got to build the other half, which means you've got to lift those big rocks up even higher and higher and higher, and suddenly you begin to discover that they have hit the halfway blues. Every one of us has hit the halfway blues at different times in our life, that point between the enthusiasm of a launch of a new initiative and the excitement of, we're nearly done. Uh, at the beginning of the project, you got all that excitement and energy and vim and vinegar. And near the end of the project, when you can, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, you got a second wind. And then there's that in-between section. The halfway blues when you wonder, am I ever going to be done with this? And those are real, aren't they? I remember when I climbed Mount Rainier with one of our elders and my friend, J- Rich Jasper. We, we uh, set off from base camp about uh, midnight. And, and I remember we marched up, and about halfway up the flank of the mountain, when it was still dark, I remember tilting my head and looking up and seeing the headlamps of all of the climbers that are ahead of me zigzagging their way back and forth up into the heavenlies. And I thought, I am never going to get to the top of this mountain. Pastor Ellis tells me that there's something at fifth week in their eight-week term. It's called the fifth week blues in Oxford. The fifth week blues where apparently the entire student body is stricken with depression. I said, pal, that's not, that's not only in England. That happens at every university in the world. I, I was talking to Krista Davis, who's one of our elders. You may know this, you may not. You'll be impressed when you hear it. Krista Davis has run five Boston marathons. She's running her sixth Boston marathon this spring. And I said, so tell me about this wall. She said, it's a real thing. Especially the first time you run a marathon, about mile 20 of a 26-mile race, you think, I will never, ever finish this race. And I'll bet there have been, whether you've run marathons or not, I bet there's been seasons in your life when you thought, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to get done. You start to peter out and consider chucking it in. It was true for the early church, too. And I think it's one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul talked about perseverance so much. Near the end of his life, when he was actually in chains and about to be executed, he was still telling them, don't give up. And it was there that he, he pronounced this wonderful, what really was his epitaph when he said, writing to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have, what? Finish the race. Finish the race. Who cares whether you start the race? Who cares whether you start a project, start a pledge, start a relationship, start a marriage? Anyone can start something. It is the one who finishes, Paul says, that gets the prize. And yet so often we pull up short. So often we find ourselves not able to get to the finish line. Why? Because we get discouraged. 
Think about that word for just a moment. Discouraged. The courage that we once had, we dis. Right? It leaves us. It abandons us. And we lose heart. And chapter 4 is a, four, is a chapter of discouragement. They are at the halfway point. And we find at that halfway point, with the halfway blues, that they have at least four reasons that I think are going to sound very familiar to all of us that they are feeling discouraged. Here they are. Criticism, opposition, fatigue, and friendly fire. So I want you to keep your Bibles open and let's take a peek at each of these. First of all, criticism. The chapter starts out with our good old friends, Sanballat and Tobiah. Do you remember what I told you their names, what I call them? The guardians of the rubble. Remember them? We've already met these guys twice before. These are the, these are the, the, uh, the political officers from regions around Jerusalem who have no interest in seeing Jerusalem restored. It is in their self-interest that it remains in the decrepit state in which it is. And so they've been fighting Nehemiah from the beginning. So now that they discover that Nehemiah really is making good on this harebrained plan of his to, to rebuild the city walls, now they ramp it up. They show up for the third time, and it won't be the last. They show up for the third time in the story, these guardians of the rubble. And they begin to talk smack. They begin to dish out criticism. So take a look. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry angry, and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, it's always easier to bully people when you've got a big crowd around you, Right? He said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then his little cartoon sidekick, Tobiah, chimes in. Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and said, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It's so pathetic. If you're going to dish out smack, do it well. I, I want to read one more verse. Notice what happens very next. Hear, O our God, he prays, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered. In a land where they are captives. Harsh prayer. It is no fun being mocked, is it? It is no fun being criticized. It is no fun being bullied. And all of us have been there at one point or another. Some of us have been in abusive relationships where that was the constant fare that we were served. And so you listen to this and it's very familiar to you. And very painful when you hear it. Sanballat and Tobiah, they're dishing out the criticism You Jews, you're too feeble to build the walls, they write, which means, in other words, you're insignificant. You Jews, you're not going to really worship here, are you? In fact, we think you're going to rebel against the king. In other words, you're insincere. You Jews, you can't possibly finish this task on time. In other words, it's impractical. You you Jews, you don't have the resources you need. Your stones that you're using come out of a rubbish heap, and they're all burned up anyhow. In other words, you are inadequate. You Jews, if a fox were to walk on your wall, he's going to tip it over. Your perfumers and your goldsmiths, they can't build a proper wall. In other words, you are inept. 
So let's look at that. Insignificant, insincere, impractical, inadequate, inept. Pretty much covers the gamut, don't you think? How would you like to be working on a job with this chorus of criticism ringing in the background? And if you have, and I bet many of you have, you know how discouraging it can be. They say sticks and stones may break my bones, but, but names can never harm me. Actually, that's not true at all. The words that people speak can be very harmful, can't they? And very discouraging. So, they're not done, though. When the guardians of the rubble see that their criticism isn't going to stop them, then they ramp it up. And now we read that they begin to resort to threats of violence. They resort to opposition. Verse 7, take a look. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, the holes were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. That's one of the enemy's greatest tactics, to confuse us. We're talking about what it would mean if God were to use every one of us to actually really bring blessing and favor to our city. If God were, amazingly, if God were to use us to rebuild broken institutions and broken relationships and and broken people, imagine that. Let me tell you, if God does use you in that way, if you raise your hand and say, I'm in, you will face opposition. It may come in the form of human beings who it is in their best interest to preserve the rubble of the status quo. But just as likely, it's going to come as a spiritual assault. As you know, we're planting a, a, a new church in Port Orchard. I shared about this at, Port, at, uh, at Presbytery. This like The whole Presbytery is excited. And church after church are saying, we are in financially. It's going to be the first baby born to the Presbytery. And so we got all these grandparents that just couldn't be more excited. It's very cool. It's very cool. Um, but last spring, when Pastor Megan was doing the, the, the spade work, the early groundwork, she was going into Port Orchard. Once a week, every Thursday, that was her Port Orchard day. She'd go in, she'd meet with people, she'd walk up and down the streets praying and, and so forth. It turned out, we began to discover every Thursday, Pastor Megan was sick. For weeks and weeks. And one kid, she was injured, had to be taken away by an ambulance. You remember, don't you? Perfectly, Colleen. Every Thursday for weeks, she was afflicted. You would think there was something spiritual going on. And of course there was. Do you think the devil, do you think the enemy wants anyone to plant a vibrant church in the city of Port Orchard? Do you think the devil wants anyone to love and care for and champion Port Orchard? Absolutely not. We can never forget this. If we're going to be used by God to bring spiritual blessing, we will always be opposed in that effort by Satan. The Apostle Paul, there's a reason that he wrote these words to his friends in Ephesus. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So these enemies you think you have, these these flesh and blood, these people that are opposing you, that's not who we're really fighting against. He says, but we are wrestling against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul says, we have a spiritual enemy who wants to harass us and harm us and harry us and hinder us and hurt God's given work. 
And if you're willing to be used, if you're raising your hand and say, I, in my whatever small way you want, I want to be used by God to bless my neighborhood, to bless my neighbors, to bless my city, do not be surprised that you find yourself under attack. In your self-worth, in your physical body, in your marriage, in your children, in your work or school, do not be surprised. When it occurs, do not fail to consider that this might very well be an attack of the, the supreme spirit uh, guardian of the rubble, Satan. And if it is, then you're going to need to respond with spiritual warfare. I don't have the time to talk about that now, but if you're interested, go back to 2017 to our archives. We preached an entire series on spiritual warfare, and it might be well for you to brush some of those sermons off. So we have criticism. We have opposition. Ah, but, but we're not done. Now comes the third discouragement. It's fatigue. Fatigue. Verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Do you hear who's complaining now, who's grousing now? It's the people themselves. See, this is the contagious nature of criticism. This is the corrosive impact when people from the outside begin shooting it down, feeding in lousy, lousy ideas and and critical ideas. Pretty soon, you begin to believe this and repeat it. It is corrosive. It's why on every tour I lead, one of our rules is no whining, because no whining is, whining is contagious. And now they have caught the contagion. The people of Judah, that is those who are building the wall, they're beginning to say, wow, we are tired. Our strength is failing us. Have you seen how big a pile of rubble we have here? We're never going to be able to finish this job. Fatigue is one of the great discouragers of life, the great discouragers in relationship, the great discouragers in ministry. On our pastoral retreat, half of the days were not even planned because we were told, go take a nap. And even those of us who never nap, napped. We have permission to nap. I'm giving you permission. You might need to nap. You might need to rest. I spoke to a pastor who's newly married, and he said to me, what do I need to do to keep my marriage and my ministry life in balance? I said, are you taking a day off? He said, no, not really. I said, well, the first thing would be stop violating the fourth commandment. You cannot have a life that is in balance unless you are taking a regular day off with your wife. You will never find ministry and life balance if you do that. In fact, what you will do is you will burn out and your wife will resent you for it. If you are persistently tired, I don't care what good things you intend to do for God. If you're persistently tired, you'll be discouraged and you will be less effective. So, Criticism, opposition, fatigue, and then finally, and this one might be a little weird to you, but the final discouragement in the text is friendly fire. Did you see here, verse 12, listen. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. It wasn't enough that the guardians of the rubble, the outsiders, the people who had no vested interest in Jerusalem, it's not enough that they're dishing out the smack talk. Now we read that it is their own people, perhaps their own family and friends 
They're the, the fellow, fellow Jews that lived around the city. They're the ones who are laying on the barrage of discouragement. In fact, how many times? Ten times. Which is just a way of saying it was incessant. incessant. They were pounding away at us. They were, they were hearing from those closest to them that they, they ought to give up this crazy dream. If you have family or friends, especially who are not believers or who are nominal believers, they will likely find your devotion to God crazy or excessive or obsessive. If you've ever tried to do what God is asking of you and you've found those closest to you criticizing you, knocking you down, if you've been hit by friendly fire, you know what a discouragement that can be right? See what I mean? These people, they're trying to obey God. They're trying to bless their city. They're, they're willing to sacrifice time and treasure and their all, whatever talent they have to make a difference, and they are being shot down at every turn. And yet, as you find, as you read on, they persist. So how did they do it? How do we persist in the face of criticism, opposition, fatigue, A friendly fire. How did they take the diss out of discouragement? How is it that we we can recover our vision and our stamina and our energy to do what God has placed before us? Here's the thing I discovered for the first time reading this passage just last week. And I've read Nehemiah oodles of times. But for the first time I saw this. It's a repeated time. A repeated theme. Four times this is repeated in chapter 4. The same theme. Over and over and over and over again. I will call it divine partnership. It is a reminder of their divine partnership. What do I mean by that? I mean that in every instance where we have an example of their discouragement, the wall builders are reminded that this work is not their own. That they are in a divine partnership with the Lord God Almighty. Now, I want to show you where those appear. By the way, first of all, I just got to say, we need to be careful about this. I, when I talk about partnership, it's not like God needs us for anything. He's God. He can do anything he wants to do. But in fact, he has chosen to invite us into mission with himself, into a kind of partnership. We are definitely the junior partner, but God says, come on, I want to work with you. He has privileged us to play a significant role in the work he wants to do to redeem his world. It's, it's, a, it's a balancing act, as we're going to discover. We, we can simply throw up our hands and say, God, you take care of it all. And we can look to the people in the pews on either side. You guys take care of it too. We can do that. And we end up not playing the part that God intended for us to play. Or we can take so much of it upon ourselves that we say, I got this, Lord. I'm going to worry this thing all the way through to the end. And we can't. We cannot possibly do any of this on our own. And if we try, we're going to live in discouragement. But if we find that balance, that, that, that playing our God-given part, but also trusting God to play his part, we can do more than we imagine. One of my favorite memories when I was a kid was when my dad and I used to jump in our 19, was it 53 Chevy Bel Air? We jumped in that car and we would drive uh, to uh, the Altanum hillside of, outside of Yakima. 
where the, where the dump was. We went to the dump. We'd load that car up in the dump and, and we'd drive to the dump. And then when we hit the gravel road, dad would say, okay, pal, climb on over here. Now, I need to say those were in the days before seatbelts, before seat, uh, child seats, you know, safety seats, before um, airbags. In other words, the good old days. That's the way you wanted to drive. And dad say, climb on over here. So I climb over and I pop into his lap and I was driving the car. And once in a while, I'd see his thumb reaching down to kind of realign the wheel. I said, dad, I got this. Of course, I did, kind of. Dad was the one with his feet on the pedals and he was making sure that we didn't put it into the ditch. But I was driving the car. My hands were on the wheel and I had dad's permission to do it. How cool was that? Every time we find discouragement in this chapter, we need to be reminded of this divine partnership between God and his people. He invites us to come over and say, come on, climb into my lap. We're going to do something great together. He gives us the wheel, even though his hand, his thumb stays there. After, for instance, after Sanballat and, and the boys talk smack to him, Nehemiah, I, I shared with you, he breaks into prayer. I read one verse of that prayer, and it is a hard-nosed prayer. Basically, he's saying, God, I want you to kick these guys' butts. I want you to dump back on them what they are wishing for us. You bring that back on them. They prayed, and then we read, and then we built. Because we had a mind to build. They prayed, and they built. They prayed. That was God's part. God, you take care of these guys. And then they built. That's point one. We drop down to verse nine. When Sambalat and Tobiah then decide, well, we're going to threaten them with violence. Here's what we read in verse 9. We prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. There it is again, a divine partnership. We prayed, that's God's part, and then we set a guard. That's their part. Verse 14, when Nehemiah sees that his gang needs a pep talk, here's what he says. Don't be afraid of these people. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and sons and daughters and wives and homes. Do you see it again? He says, remember the Lord. He's great. He's awesome. Don't forget our great God. And fight for your family. Remember the Lord. That's God's part. And you fight for your family. Fight like your life depended on it because it does. And then one more time in verse 18. I want to read a little bit more. Each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built That had to be awkward. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall from one another, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So the wall was big and there were breaches in the wall and they were spread out. And so Nehemiah had to come up away if they attacked in one weakness of the wall to to rally the troops. And he said, okay, I'm going to keep this this kid with his trumpet with me. Anytime you hear the trumpet, rally to wherever the trumpet is playing. And uh, and that's the way we're going to protect it. Rally to that site. So that was their part. When they heard the trumpet, they're going to rally. But then did you see the very last line? Our God will fight for us. God's part. Rally to the point. Bring your swords. Their part. Our God will fight for us. Our part. So which is it? Are they going to show up and pull out their swords and begin to fight? Or is God going to fight for them? 
Which is the answer? Yes, both, right? Both. It's divine partnership. Think about our, those goofy apostles of Jesus who had failed him at every turn and right to the very end. These were the only plan that Jesus had. He had no plan B. This was how he was going to spread his gospel around the world. There was no backup plan. They had to do their part. When he said, go into all the world, they had to go. But he said, before you go, though, I want you to stop for a moment in Jerusalem because I got a surprise for you. And so they stopped and they waited for the Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost who gave them the power and the gifts to do what they could have never done in their own strength. Do you see it? He says, go into all the world. But wait a second. Here's the Holy Spirit. And so they, they wait for the Spirit and then they do what God tells them. It's go and I'm with you. If we don't raise our hand, and I talked a lot about this last week because there are scores and scores of people in our church, honestly, and I, to my to my pain, who never say I'm in about anything. If we don't raise our hand and say, God, I'm in. I want to be used by you to bless my city, my neighborhood. Here's the the remarkable truth. Apparently, if we don't say yes, there will be some things left undone. There will be lives that are left untouched. Somehow, God's mission actually counts on us. And that is amazing. But if we take on that mission as if it depends on us, as if God has no other uh, options but me, then we are only going to become discouraged and wearied and harried and harassed. The secret to persevering in our mission, whatever that mission might be, is to constantly recall that we are not on our own, that we are in this divine partnership by invitation of God to rebuild his broken world. And so we pray to God, and then we roll up our sleeves and build. We pray to God, and then we set up a guard to make sure we are safe. We fight against what is evil and broken in the world, and God fights for us. Both are true. It's kind of crazy when you think of, in some ways, it's the essence of Christianity. This idea of the divine, transcendent God coming to us. And inviting us into partnership and mission with him. But it's the truth from the beginning of scriptures to the end. From Moses on the Mount Sinai and the burning bush, you're going to go and my name is Yahweh. To Isaiah when he stood before the temple of God. He's, Where, here, here am I, send me Lord. I'm going to cleanse you, God says. I'll cleanse your mouth. To uh, David in the Valley of Elah when he's walking towards the giant that no one else would fight. He said, you go, I'm gonna, I, it's going to be I who am fighting for you. And finally to the Lord Jesus himself on the Mount of Olives and the Great Commission when he says, go and lo, I am with you always. That is the persistent call of God's people from the beginning of Genesis to the last of Revelation. Go and I will be with you. Go and I will be with you. If you miss out on either of those, either you miss out on the privilege of being part of God's mission, you let others have all the fun, or if you take too much of it on yourself, you will be crushed by a weight you were never intended to bear. But if we can find the balance between saying yes to God's call and trusting Him in every moment, man, what we will do. Let's pray.
So God, I, I pray for us where we are and each person who needs to hear this message. There are some who need to hear the message that I am with you. They're taking too much upon themselves. They are worrying. They are anxious. Lord, this would be my struggle at times. I, I forget that you really are there. And I forget how faithful you have been when I read about this issue or I'm concerned about this problem in the church and I wear it too heavily and I forget how faithful you are. And there are some here today who need to be reminded of your faithfulness and to trust you. So help us to do that. There are others here who need to raise their hand for the first time, who have never spoken a good word for God, who have never thought about inviting a friend to coffee or to a Bible study or to church, who have always let other people do the work of mission and assumed that someone else would carry the load. God, I pray that you would stir us, stir those for whom this is true. Cause them to say, all right, Lord, timidly, I I raise my hand. I don't know how to do this, but I don't want to be left out of the joy of your mission. So God, increasingly, I pray, would you cause those who've never raised their hand to say, okay, I'll give it a try, Lord. I'm completely dependent upon you, but I'll give it a try. God, we want to be used by you. We don't want to be content in our own little community behind these wonderful walls. We want to go out beyond these walls and touch and love and champion and care for the communities in which you planted us and which you intend to use us to bring about some act of restoration. May we be that people. For we ask it in the name of the one who's promised he would be with us always. Our Lord Jesus and all of God's people said,